Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. I'm Sean and this is episode 81 and it's our long-awaited review of some of those Essen games, Ronan. <laughs> yeah, the final batch probably will we'll do a bunch of them. It's taken a while after all the disruption, but they're here. We're eager to let you know what we think and we're going to whiz through six relatively quick reviews, I think, this time. And Sean, what games are you going to present for our listeners' delight? Well, Ronan, I am going to do a Railroad Revolution from Watch Your Game. I'm going to do a River Horses Jim Henson's Labyrinth board game. And I'm going to finish off with some Frieden Fries and Fable Fruit. Oh, fella, 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 fella. I'll continue with the fella, fella, with the feast for Odin from Uwe Rosenberg. Then I'm going to give you some Grizzled after Mark Johnson recommended it in our uh, episode with him last year. I finally got around to playing the Grizzled and some Valeria Card Kingdoms. That's Valeria Card Kingdoms as opposed to the other games called Valeria. We'll probably be mentioning that nomenclature yeah. at some point as well. Not confusing yeah. at all. No, that's good. That's good. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us, Sean. We can be found on the Dice Tower Network, everybody. You go there for gaming goodness a galore. And if you wish to download the episodes, we are on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbean. I was going down to DC for the best night of my life. I was going to see my sweetheart and make that gal my wife. I waited at the station, but that train did not arrive. Blame the train. It's why I'm always late. It's not me. Right, we're going to kick off proceedings with Railroad Revolution, designed by Marco Canetta, Stefania Nicolini, and coming from Pegasus Spiel and What's Your Game. It plays two to four players in approximately 60 to 90 minutes. The game is based in 19th century America. And you are going to become a railroad tycoon battling to get your railway corporation to the top of the money tree. And you're going to do this by building the railroads and stations. You're going to connect cities. You're going to expand the telegraph lines. And you're also going to have your own objectives that you're chasing. So in Railroad Revolution, you have a board. And that's depicting a map of the USA. The map shows the railroads to be built and the cities that need connecting. And there's also more on it, but I'll tell you about those later. You also have a player board, and that is going to show your actions, and it's going to hold your yet-to-be-built rails and stations. So they're all going to be on your board, ready to go on later. In the game, you have four basic actions. Let's build a station, build some of the railroad, build a telegraph office, or sell off one of your assets and your assets are the station and rail sections okay and the currency in the game is dollars and bonds right so that sounds all very run-of-the-mill really bog standard and this is where it changes up a little bit you have access to different workers that when used give different bonuses to each of the basic actions so you start off with your non-specialized white worker and they give you no bonus then you're going to move on to a purple worker the foreman He's going to give you victory point bonuses. Accountant, when you get some of the orange workers, they're going to make things cheaper for you. The negotiator in grey gives you in-game benefits. And finally, the turquoise engineer improves the main action in some way. The board also has an area to build those telegraph offices that I mentioned earlier. As also with building stations, building one of these is going to offer a reward with the first person to place getting an additional bonus, and they also offer end-of-game points. Other aspects to the gameplay, you have deals. Now, I mentioned there's bonds in this game. 
The only way to get a deal is by swapping bonds for the deals. And these are pretty good. So instead of just swapping your bonds for straight money, you might want to hold on to them. You have train tiles. These are going to be flipped for money and other bonuses. But once they're flipped, they have to be flipped over again by an action. I mentioned there's another part of the board. That is the performance tracks. And these tie in with your in-game achievements and what you're trying to do on the board, building the railroads, building stations, etc. And they're going to offer you end-of-game scoring depending on how far you've progressed on the board and how far you've progressed up on each of the tracks. And lastly, you have milestones. Uh, these are the personal goals that you can achieve for points. So, Ronan... When we first looked at this board, how did you feel? I felt a little bit bland, mate. It's really great quality, as we come to expect from what's your game. So that's the first thing. All the bits work. It's very clear where everything goes. There's lots of iconography, which doesn't take that long to get your head round. But it's the theme, Sean, as well as the presentation. And the board's quite plain. And it's uninspiring is the nail I was hitting there. Yeah, yeah. You kind of look at it and you think, yeah, okay, it's a train game. You can obviously see that it's a train game. You can see the tracks on the board. But I think the iconography is very strong, so it, it aids in play. But yeah, it doesn't stand out from the crowd. I think it was more the publisher than the game that attracted me to this. Yeah, it's got, it's got the look of Nippon and Shangri-La. So if you've seen those games, you can almost tell by looking at it that it is related, it, there's a family resemblance along, which I think is good because what's your game are getting a strong identity for themselves as publishers. This has been picked up by Pegasus Spieler, which has given it wider distribution, uh, which is great for that company because any company that's making these medium to medium heavy Euros, that is exactly where I want to be. So firstly... I'm very happy that it's out at all and they're continuing to make games. But we've mentioned it plenty of times, working in the rail industry, a rail theme, not that exciting a board. This one did have a little bit of winning me over to do. Yeah, I'd say so too, but I didn't pick it up myself in Essen itself. It was only I played it later with Steve, who comes onto the game pit quite regularly. And yeah, it was after that that I started sort of seeing what was behind this plain facade. When you're learning the game, running, I don't know if you learn it from the rulebook itself or somebody taught you. How did you find sort of easing yourself into the game was? So I was taught the game, so I've never actually read the rule book. It's one of those games that, because a lot of the mechanisms are familiar, so you're doing worker placement, okay, the workers are slightly different. But you kind of go, oh, well, I understand how this all works. Oh, yeah, there's a track, and I'll score more points if I go up on there for which particular aspect I go for. And, uh, yeah, there's some routes and stations. So I almost took it too lightly, because it all made sense. I went, oh, great, yeah, so I'll just fire some down, and it'll all be good. And to me, that kind of ease of learning, Sean, heed that it's a game in which you have to have a long-term strategy and you have to know where you're going and you have to plan ahead. So it was almost deceptively simple to learn. Yeah, I think there's kind of a double edge to it. Like, I think it is really easy to get into. I got taught the game myself as well, but after getting the game after that, I had to learn it again from the rule book to remind myself. And I found the rule book really easy. As I said, the iconography is really good. But also, you start off with just those white workers and one of the other colour workers. You're easing gently in. You haven't got access to most of the bonus actions for each of the main actions at the beginning. So, yeah, it's very nice to ease yourself in that way and it's not daunting but as you said Ronan yeah you've also got the flip side of that where it is maybe sort of fooling you a little bit into thinking it is going to be that easy all the way through 
Yeah, if every upgrade of a worker into the specialised worker, you almost have to plan ahead because you need to constantly set yourself up to make the boast of, well, for example, when you spread along the traps and you're the first person to get to a particular station, if you can use a particular colour worker, you're going to get an extra bonus. You have to be lined up to do that. When you want to claim all these bonuses as you go through, because you start with a couple of A-level ones, and then you go to B, Cs, and Ds, so they become harder. You start on the East Coast, and you travel across to the West Coast. They're geographically linked to how far you've progressed during the game, but you have to plan ahead for them, and you have to, especially that management of your pool of workers is vital. In fact, the last game I played, you can never go lower than four workers, and I had played it and I was using my fourth worker to win the game and I got told you can't do it and I'd forgotten that rule and I guess that's my particular insight into it is that you can almost forget some of the rules because they're so simple don't go below four workers but your brain starts working so far in advance you're trying to plan everything that's going on to the oomph degree that the simple rules sometimes are the ones I was forgetting. Yeah, going back to that that mechanism where you're actually building up your workers. I really like it. It's kind of like deck building or worker building. But yeah, you have to tie that in with your roots as well. So because the roots will offer you access to to more of these workers. And if you're going down, if you want the grey workers, for instance, you have to look ahead and say, right, what way do I need to go? to give myself access to these great work. You can always buy one, but it's quite a lot of money, and money starts off very, very tight at the beginning of this game. It does ramp up, and it, there is an arc to it, but at the beginning it's very tight. So I, I, really I think that plan. money ebbs and flows, though, doesn't it? Like a few things in the game, you kind of you feel like, oh, I'll make a load of money now, and then suddenly it's all gone again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it does, it does. And that's where you do really have to plan where the next money's coming from, where your next expansion's coming from, where your next station. All of these, you've got to plan for. And it sounds really daunting, but I think the beauty of the game is that there's more than one way to crack the nut of each, each of those there, conundrums. Is there... Or do you just hit up that telegraph station strategy and it's clearly overpowered? (laughs) You can only do that so often. And if you do that too much, you're not going to have enough stations to put on the board. It doesn't matter because if you whack all those telegraphs and you get all the bonuses and you get that particular track up to 20. I wouldn't say it is as balanced as the other available strategies. I've seen someone do exactly that. I've seen this and I've seen that and I've seen a flying pig. And that person finished last in a three-player game. Then they did it badly. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other interesting things, actually, where I played another four-player game of it, was that someone took all the bonuses that let them take a particular colour worker. I think it was the orange workers. And there's a limited pool of each of the workers. And what they did was they made the orange workers run out. And then anyone else who had a goal or anything to do with orange workers, suddenly they weren't there. And I thought that was really interesting because I was used to the money being tight. I was used to not being able to do all the things I want to do. And there's another aspect where a player's gone, hold on, if I just monopolise that, then suddenly everyone else is in a more of a bind that becomes tighter for them. And that's sort of another interesting thing to it, Sean, that's it's easy to do anything but there are always limitations on how to do them well yeah and there's always something else that's going to flag if you if you concentrate on one area something else is going to go on the way but if you're doing the telegraph stations it doesn't matter okay fair enough (laughs) be quiet now (laughs) on to the bonds as well man which is another thing you start off thinking okay well i've got each bond is 150 pounds and you only really think of them well i did in my first game i was like oh that i've got that money i've got that pool of money and I was just considering my bonds as the money because I was thinking, uh, the no, deals, no, no, how good no, are the no, deals no. going to be? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the deals started flipping over. I had used all my bonds and spent them. And I was thinking, I could have really done with that. 
that would have been really helpful <laughs> and that's okay towards the beginning because you can look at where you are where you're building your tracks and you can say okay it's all right so if i branch in that direction i'm gonna be able to pick up the specialized workers that will allow me to get extra bonds while i'm taking my normal action i'm doing anyway it's when you get it later on in the game when suddenly you realize ah i've run out of bonds and i've used all those workers and they're all gone into my objectives and suddenly ah, it's, again it's kind of it's an ebb and flow and the tightness comes and goes and I do like that. Sometimes those deals are just just too good, man. The dividends, you're just too good to pass up and you go, they, the they whole are. plan for the next three turns are just gone because there's a particularly good dividend come up. And also, uh, you touched on it with using your fourth worker when you said that uh, you're using your fourth worker to win the game. But also, the way you push those workers into play and then, because you, once you've used your last worker on the board or in your discard pile then you restart again and all your workers come back into your available pool. So I, I played a game once where I was constantly getting new workers all the time and I thought that was a good strategy, but I never got to restock. So I was constantly getting a, a flow of one or two workers, but I never had the choice in with a smaller pool of workers where you just get them all on the board, then you restock and then you're off again. Yeah, there's definitely an, an interesting management choice there. Yeah. That you're managing a pool of workers as opposed to just like because it, it's not exactly worker placement is it it's just very much action selection and the color of worker determines the variety of that action you're doing but exactly as you said it's possible to just keep them coming keep them coming but by doing that you're actually limiting your options which is kind of one of the counterintuitive parts to it but but yeah it's a, it's a very good point sean is there anything else you want to cover before we sum up interaction ronan i felt my one negative issue with the game is i felt there wasn't that much interaction the bonds provide a small bit of interaction and get into a station or a telegraph post first, but there's a way to mitigate even against that. So I felt it wasn't the most interactive game. I, the only time I really cared what other people were doing is towards the end when it's getting close to one person maybe triggering the end of the game. I, th- I think you said that nicely. I agree. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, Railroad Revolution. For me, this is a very good Euro with a strong puzzle aspect to it. I wouldn't say it was that exciting a game, but I find it quite a testing game because one of my eyes constantly has to be on that long-term goal. Am I trying to do all my objective tiles? Am I going for the telegraph stations? Which of these three tracks am I going to push up and maximise my scoring? And most importantly, how am I managing that pool of workers? However, I still have to be tactical. I still have to see when someone's threatening to get into the station first where I vitally need that bonus. Or are the dividends coming? Or is someone going to open up opportunities when they see that I'm deliberately low in cash or bombs? So all the time there's those tactical thoughts, but the strategic element is the strongest i really like railroad revolution it's another hit for me from what's your game and pegasus well it's likewise for me ronnie is a is a huge hit it's one of my probably the top three games out of essen and one of my top games of the year last year i think the game has lots of freedom and direction it has an arc but you've kind of made me think about the arc i was i thought it had a definite arc starting slow and finishing strong but what you said actually makes a lot of sense. You actually do kind of ebb and flow in the middle of the game. You do lose all your money, and then you build it up again. So, yeah, I think it's got arcs rather than an arc. I think... <laughs> Say that carefully. <laughs> I think the spiral Ronan says, I think there are balance routes to victory. I think the random setup gives, gives lots of longevity in the game. It's a rock-solid Euro done by designers who understand it exactly what the genre is all about 
And I think it's another winner for Watch Your Game and Pegasus Spiel. Very nice. Well, we're going to go on to another Euro, Sean. Let's see if this one's rock solid. It's Feast for Odin, the literally large release from Essen 2016. Uwe Rosenberg, it's one to four players. Playtime depends very much on player count, but we're going to go anywhere, I would say, from an hour and a half up to maybe three hours. In Feast for Odin, you are telling the story of your own Viking clan. And the way you can do that is you start off with a home board, which begins you the game with minus 80 points. And you're going to attempt to cover this board with goods over the course of the game. Goods come in different levels from orange to blue and different shapes. You'll be able to upgrade goods that you get in orange or red or green and get them up to blue because there is a patchwork way in which you have to cover your home board and any other boards you may get and the word patchwork was used for a reason how are you going to get these goods well you can be playing over seven rounds of proper worker placement a shared board whereby if you take a space no one else can take that space you start off with six workers and every round you're going to get another worker and you're going to have to feed them also using those goods although you're going to use orange and red level ones to feed them usually and it's the upgraded greens and blues you're mostly going to be using especially to cover that home board on the worker placement aspect itself there are four columns of actions which are loosely grouped together in generally similar things the four columns represent whether you need to go in there with one two three or four of your vikings to activate that particular action little bonuses for going in on three or four worker columns and obviously the more vikings you put in generally the better action is going to be although there's one or two in which the three viking one and the four viking one are the same it's whoever gets there first is going to have done it slightly cheaper in general what you're attempting to do is use an opportunity to collect raw resources of uh, standardly wood and stone and ore and possibly coins mostly going to be using them to build buildings build ships or possibly help to fuel some of the other actions on the board so that's kind of the very starting level of your economy you can buy raw goods there is money in the game you can sometimes get it from raw resources you can be able to get it in income off your board as you start to fill it but we're going to come back to that you can be able to go out hunting trapping or whaling you do those strangely or i guess in a worker placement over rosenberg game this can be related to dice rolling in which you're going to attempt to be rolling low on three rolls of a dice whether it's hunting trapping or whaling you're doing if you're going whaling it's a possibility to build some whaling boats and the more whaling boats you have and the more tooled up they are with ore the more chance you have of whaling successfully there's mitigation with the roll of that dice you're always trying to get a result of zero you can be able to use either raw resources or there are weapon cards in the game you're going to start with one random one from four and every turn you draw one random one there are some ways of getting a couple more weapon cards here and there but you are pretty much at the fate of the gods there other things you can do on these worker placements you're going to be able to explore other islands you're going to start with four available to you and they kind of extend out from scandinavia across the north sea across the north atlantic over to newfoundland there's baffin island greenland the shetlands etc etc there's basic ones available from the first round and as the rounds go on if the first board hasn't been explored it flips over to become bigger islands now as well as your home board being negative points, those islands you can explore start as negative points, as do the buildings you can build to add to your to your home board. Everything starts as negative points, and you're going to look to put goods on there to get rid of the negative points and also to give you income, which, like I said, I'm going to come back to. There are three types of boats you can build. There are wading boats, as discussed. There's also a canar, and there's a longship. And you can emigrate canars and longships, and what that does is 
two things. Firstly, you're going to score points for building them in the first place. But if you emigrate with those boats, they are worth many more points at the end of the game. Also, they mitigate the amount of food you're going to have to pay at the end of every round during the feast. So there's kind of a double bonus to doing that. Now, one of the most Viking-y things you can do is raiding and pillaging. That's the second thing you can be rolling dice for. You're going to send out a longboat or more, and you're going to be rolling either the D8 or the D12, and you're looking for a high roll this time, which you can add to using ore and using swords if you've been lucky enough to draw them. And there's a special board, in fact, off raiding and pillaging goods you can choose from these tend to be bigger than the normal goods tiles and in different shapes which will help you to fill in certain areas off the board because once you've finished placing all your vikings taking turns going around whoever's last to place can be first player next turn you are going to use any valid goods you can on any of the boards you own as you wish to do so now blue is the highest level you can place blues anywhere on islands and on your home board greens which is the one level below that can only be placed kitty corner to each other also on the board there's a all of them there are one or more diagonal going up from left to right and upwards income spaces and you're going to get income in coins off the next income space you haven't covered however in order to cover an income space everything to the left and below it has to be covered so you're going to be building up from the bottom left across to maximize your income also on your home board and on the island boards and all the island boards are different in this you are going to have spaces whereby if you've completely surrounded the eight spaces around it you are going to get a bonus income in goods be it wood, stone, whale bones, some jewellery, a bit of fur, whatever it may be. And that's very varied. It's up to you how you want to try and fill that in. But that's why those raiding and pillaging tasks can sometimes be useful. That's pretty much how you play. There's 14 sort of phases to each round, but some of them are very, very quick. It could just be as simple as drawing a card and things like that. So it actually plays quicker than it first appears when you first learn. At the end of the game, you're going to score points for, well, you're going to lose points for areas on your home board and explored boards which you haven't covered. But you're going to score points for having explored islands, for having emigrated, for having built uh, storehouses and extra buildings. If you've managed to farm livestock, you might score a few points for that. You can go raiding and you can possibly take the crown of England if you have that as a few extra points for you and most points after seven rounds is going to win the game sean a feast for odin was it a feast for your gaming pleasure well ronan it got off to a bad start oh dear given that i bought a copy for you yes you and did. i bought a copy for me yes you did and didn't have time to punch them because i bought them on the day i was leaving so we had to punch them all in <laughs> dusseldorf airport lovely airport uh, yeah, yeah, probably took half an hour per piece for Odin to punch. You know, for some people, that's pure pleasure. Ow, oh, keep talking. I'm going to punch my chits, baby. It was laborious, shall we say. <laughs> the amount of cardboard in this game, I said it before and I'll say it again, has that man ever seen a tree that he didn't want to chop down and turn into a game board? <laughs> like, what is going on? It's absolutely outrageous. But okay, game itself is quite daunting, Ronan. When you first to start to look into it because there's there's a lot of options available to you it's kind of yeah it makes it seem like there's a lot of options it makes it seem like there's tons and tons and tons going on once you learn it and once you've played it one once or twice you kind of go do you know what there's not that much going on here so there's a few aspects to it 
that I wonder, why did you throw that in? That's just a funny little kink in the system that adds to that initial hurdle and adds to the aspects of learning, which I'm not sure adds very much. I'm going to give you one example, all right, because just to say it without example is a bit silly. Occupation cards. There are three decks of these. I call it occupation cards from Agricola. I think they call it occupation cards. But anyway, there's three decks of these cards, and you're told to only start with the basic ones. You kind of go, wow, there's an awful lot of cards in there. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of them. These must be vital. You start the game with one. You might get one or two more during the game, and you might even play four or five over the course of a whole game. Generally towards the later rounds when you've got more Vikings. And they generally have very, very small, eeky, eeky bonuses that, you might get to use once or twice in the whole game. Some of them are just one-off powers. You can never use them more than once. And you go, oh, there's like 180 cards in this game that very rarely get used and make very little difference. And that almost sums up what I feel is the design ethos of the game. Here's loads of things that make very little difference. When you start off with this big, long list of, of actions you can do, they're kind of grouped into little things that that sort of grouped together anyway. And I felt like once I started down a track, it was very hard to sort of move away from that and be a bit diverse in my tactics in the game. Well, when I first encountered it and first played it, I was like, okay, for example, I'm going to try doing whaling. And I'm going to go down this route and that's what I'm going to try and do. I'm going to try and make that work. And it didn't work that great. So I was like, maybe wading's not the best strategy. So now I'm just going to try and build loads of outhouses. And I fill them up with cheap goods and wood and stone and stuff. And I'm going to try and get... No, that didn't work so good. Now I'm going to try farming. I'm going to get sheep. I'm going to get cows. And I'm going to that. And what it's doing on me, Sean, is it's really useless to try and specialise in the game. And all of this sort of promise of strategy and promise of well if you want to be an emigration viking you run that sort of thing or you might want to be one that explores a lot but actually you need to do a bit of you definitely need to emigrate you definitely should be exploring it looks really difficult when it starts off but they're not that hard to cover honestly though you're almost always score points for exploring from a decent island and then the other bits are kind of fiddly diddly around the edges oh do i need an extra fish to have a feast this time raid explore emigrate that that's the heart of the game and that's only maybe a quarter of the spaces in the game mm, okay okay but at least what that does do is it leads to an interesting fight for those spaces because mm. when you first see the board and there's what 60 action spaces you go well, well i'll just go somewhere where no one else is i don't really care but actually you do realize oh you, there are certain spaces you do need to be trying to hit at least once every couple of turns there's two major irritations for me in this game one is a definite irritation because i don't think it's actually hard to do and that's feeding unless you're doing something horribly wrong in this game you're always going to be able to feed i just find it irritating to keep having to feed everybody at the end of the round i'm always going to be able to do it yeah because you have a harvest four out of the seven rounds so you almost get enough stuff to feed your vikings every time if you emigrate you will get enough stuff to feed your vikings every time but maybe you'll need one or two more things so it's just this, exactly what you say it's this little itch this little do i need one or two more and you kind of spend a couple of minutes thinking about it when you just go in that could be cut out of the game it really wouldn't make any difference reduce the, the food and just have an amount of food on offer to do extra things and then you're fine just cut it out completely covering an area in this game which is probably the it's one of the biggest things of the game it's, it's how you score all your points by covering areas 
seems laborious and it just lacks fun. Now, I'm not a big fan of like covering areas Tetris style. I like patchwork because patchwork's got more to it than just laying your tiles. It's all about getting your buttons and moving around and your economy. Hey, there's more going on and it's quick. It's it quick. I'm with you. That one I'll give you. <laughs> no, by the way, that sounds like I don't like patchwork. I adore patchwork. God, patchwork was was quick enough, and there was a bit more going on. But I didn't mind about the title. This one is laborious, and it just lacks any type of fun for me covering those areas. Just like, okay, yeah, I'll, cut, I'll try and cover this bit. I'll try and cover that bit. I'll try and get around this coin and surround it. Like it just had no interest to me at all. It just bored me. I, I think it's even worse than boring. It's a massive, massive pain in my ox, Sean. In my ox. In the ox. <laughs> massive pain. It's just so god irritating and so needlessly irritating. I don't even know why. This should not be the scoring system for this game. It's so annoying. You're just sitting there at the end of the game. I tell you, what, I play this worker placement game, and the worker placement section is good. It's okay. It's fine. But I've got this tension headache at the back of my head building up over the couple of hours knowing that at the very end we're all going to sit there for 15 minutes because eventually by turn seven we finally turn some big tiles into blues and we've got some greens and we've got some raided ones and we're then going to start sitting there trying to dibby dobby them in into our home board and our island trying to find the best fit for the dibby and the dobby it doesn't really fit oh i'll take that one. Oh yeah no no oh no i'll take this one and move it back over no no that one should go oh no the two greens are not kitty corner to each other oh i have to take all these four out now but oh my god it's horrific i hate it it's just it ruins the game for me i actually wondered if i was gonna gonna get some agreement out of you that and it turns out it's even worse worse not boring <laughs> right. puts me off the whole game so you've played this quite a number of times right i've played it twice and t- spoilers i don't want to play it again <laughs> uh, so that's probably the last time I'm going to play it. But did you get the scene? You know, we always talk about when you're building something, you can look down and you've, you've built it and that's yours and like you're proud of it. In Agricola, for instance, you're proud of what you've put together. Did you get the same feeling with this? I get the feeling when I've explored and I've been able to get some bonuses coming in each turn i've ready to surround a, a space and what have you i get the feeling when i had emigrate and like i say look i built this i used that long ship to raid i got some stuff for it and then i emigrated and flipped over and i'm scoring points so there's a there's a couple of aspects if i'm able to buy a long haul and then i'm able to get some food and fill it in so there's aspects of it where i go oh that was good that was satisfying Although even some of those buildings you buy are, seem needlessly like there's blocks in the middle of them you can't fill in. So you're trying to fiddle-de-diddle-de around them. And there's like, you get a cabbage, but a cabbage won't fit in that space. I need, need a bean and... Oh, yeah, me, 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 me. Anyway, aspects of it, Sean, back to your original point. The fact <laughs> that you're getting more Vikings, the kind of game's accelerating a bit. If I get a decent whaling fleet out and I, and I go whaling with my three ships, and yeah, I, I, there's some sense of a achievement in that but one of the things is when you're trying to do something the game will often give you orange or red goods for doing it so when you're waiting you get these big old whale bones and they're red and they won't fit in any of the buildings that a red tile will go in so you have to trade to trade up for them but trading is not that 
that many trade spaces. So, so trade in the game is turn an orange to a red, red to a green, then a green to a blue. You can do a couple of steps at a time, generally one step at a time. So I'll trade in that red, I'll turn it into a green. Then I'll look at it and it's massive. And I go, if I put that on as a green, there's such a big area I can't put any more greens on. I'm going to have to trade this again up for a blue. So I'm wailing one turn to turn it into the green the second turn, to then the third turn turn it into something I can actually use. But then it's so big, there's large areas of the boards I cannot put it in, especially on the islands. And I've done half the game to get a big blue tile, which is actually a pain because it won't fit anywhere at the end of the game. <sighs> exactly. Listen, it's for me, fair enough, you may have produced something at the end of the game and that's yours and you've put it together. But if you haven't enjoyed the journey, you're not really going to look back at a fondness on what you've created. Even something as simple as Suburbia, when you've got very simple tiles, not a lot depicted on them, but you've had fun building it and it's yours at the end of the game. If you think, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I remember that's the way I put that together. Yeah, it's all come together nicely. This one, it doesn't matter how well it comes together. I've not enjoyed the journey, so I'm looking down at me. I'm almost the other way around. I've kind of enjoyed the journey and I hate the destination. <laughs> because like the whole work placement bit and all that and the trading up and all that that's fine i don't mind all that the strategizing the way to use my workers that's what it's that there's no satisfying denouement right okay i think i've made my feelings clear on this one right and i just didn't enjoy it i found it cumbersome irritating laborious and i just lacked any fun that i've had with previous uve rosenberg games Love some of his previous stuff, but this one just didn't hit the nail on the head for me at all. Not even a near miss. It's quite a, quite a distant miss, I'm afraid. That's my thoughts on it. So uh, I'm retreading ground. I've just been whinging about there. Worker placement section is good. If over-fussy and parts of it are in there that just don't need to be in there at all. There's too many sort of small little dead ends you can go into, and the actions you're taking aren't really going anywhere. On that worker placement, the random die rolls... They're hardest to mitigate early in the game when if you roll three sevens when you're trying to go trapping, you're not going to get what you want. Or if you go pillaging and you roll low, you're not going to get what you want. And it's early in the game that makes the biggest difference because those are the tiles you can then use to set yourself up, get a better income and start rolling in what it is you want to do. Get the money to buy a ship, which isn't an action, which saves you Vikings, etc, etc. Some of the mitigation for those dice rolls are the weapon cards which are completely random so you can't strategize i might want to go down a pillaging route but never draw a sword or i'm uh, you know have four snares but i don't particularly want to go trapping it's strange that more of the luck is early on which can kind of hamper you going through so it's a long euro which requires a lot of thought which is front ended with random i've said it the scoring is an ah absolute pain you're just fiddle farting around with these sometimes tiny little tiles trying to somehow work out where they go and it's just not worth it for me now i will play it because there's enough there for me to say okay the first hour and 15 minutes are okay they're fine i would rather someone else came along and just put all the tiles on my board and tell me what I scored at the end of the game. That way, I might actually quite like the game. Or weigh my tiles. That's how many grams I have of tiles at the end. That's your score. Rather than this God, area thing, which is terrible. So, Feast for Odin is a miss. Quite like the heart of the game. Despise the end game. Wow, despise. It's not often we use the D word. Oh, that end game, mate. 
Have you seen me doing it though? Just getting more and more annoyed with the ball going. I, I would rather go off and play patchwork on my iPhone while Rachel filled in the board because she loves <laughs> there are other opinions available Rachel loves it that's why oh, lots of people love it yeah yeah lots of people uh, love it I just, don't, I just don't get it okay so we started off the show with a couple of deepish games we're gonna go super light now with Jim Henson's Labyrinth the board game designed by Alessio Cavatore and coming from River Horse Games and DV Giochi so as in the film you're going to guide Sarah, Ludo, Sir Didymus and Hoggle through Jareth's, the your Goblin King, his labyrinth, and you're trying to find Sarah's little brother who Jareth has stolen. Now, in the game, you your hit points are, are willpower, and Jareth is co- constantly trying to sap your willpower, and each player will take on one of the characters I mentioned, and you've got a range of powers. You've got your wit, you've got your brawn, and you've got your speed. Each one of these is going to be represented by a, a different dice, you know, with a D4 being the lowest, and it goes up as far as a D20. All you're doing in the game is you've got a stack of cards. You're going to move your speed around the board. When you land on a space, you then are going to take a card. You're going to put the card on that space. It's either going to be an enemy or a challenge. And then that's going to challenge your brawn or your wit. And you're going to roll the dice to see if you, you meet that challenge. And if you do, then happy days. If you don't, so you'll lose some willpower. If you should get in the same space as somebody else, so you can, if the team agrees, you can all go together and you can fight the challenge or t- fight the enemy or take on the challenge together. You keep going until eventually you're going to draw the card that says the entrance to the Goblin City is, is available. You then take on a range of goblins, yet once again, using your wits and your brawn. And then eventually, Sarah, the player that's playing Sarah, must take on Jareth, the Goblin King. You're going to use your wit and your brawn, and you're going to roll against Jareth. And to win the game, you must say the speech or the spell or recant the spell or whatever it is that Sarah says at the end of Labyrinth. And then you win the game. And there's other little cards in the game that also have you uh, saying uh, famous sayings from the film or recanting tales. That's pretty much it, Ronan. But you can't wait to get your teeth in this one. I don't remember the film very well. I didn't, but as you know, Natalie is a massive fan. Remember what you did with Lord of the Rings, the cartoon? Remember you watched it so many times on on videotape that you wore the videotape thin? Twice. Twice. (laughs) (laughs) She did that with Labyrinth. So that's why it came into the household. Okay, that it had to a be a Christmas good reason, present. didn't it? There did. did. Oh, <laughs> I get, no. Right, okay, let's start on the positives. It is The minis a, are pretty. The, the minis are amazing. That's enough Absolutely positive. amazing. <laughs> the board, <laughs> now the board is very, the board is very nice, but what I don't like, I'm not a big fan of using stills from a movie on cards. Always like to see actual original artwork or least something different so some games get away with it like your spartacus because it's such a good game but i think yeah and i'm not a big fan of stills from movies or tv programs on cards oh, i was just playing that harry potter battle of hogwarts it's got all stills from the movies all through that we we're just discussing it off air. <laughs> <All right. laughs> maybe we won't play that together <laughs> yeah. I mean, if it's a good game then overall, uh, fine the presentation pretty good i think it's, it's a solid game the minis are absolutely beautiful they're stunning take those oh. out of the box put them on the shelf throw the rest away no okay <laughs> so, i haven't played it 
but as we do when we haven't played the games, we kind of go and do some research to try and come up with some talking points. So Ooh. I'm going to play. Sean, you comment on these Board Game Geek comments. First one, the one that came up all the time in loads of reviews comments, Talisman Light. Now, I would have said that was a hard thing to be accurate. <laughs> a lighter version of Talisman. But that's what the consensus is. Oh, my discuss. God. I've, I've recently got the Talisman app on my phone. And I've been playing it. And, yeah, Talisman is a very light game. You're just what you're going around a board, at the edge of a board. You enjoy being a toad. <laughs> that's, well, that's the only reason. <laughs> you're going around the board. You're encountering people and places and you're rolling dice to try and defeat them but you have a few other little things you can do you have uh, things that you can get in like cards you can get and weapons you can get and things that mitigate and and spells etc yeah none of that in this literally wit and brawn this card tests you against your wit roll your dice did you beat it no did you beat it yeah yay okay okay challenge level for the game i like this quote played it with my five-year-old and we won easily i think the only challenge is if you get one of those cards that says you have to quote from the film and you don't know it there's your challenge and that's that's not a challenge mate that's a yes the the challenge honestly it is so (laughs) obvious you get together and you move around as a group and it's impossible to lose you would have to roll some stinking dice like okay. stinking. I don't even know if it's possible some challenge to actually lose. Because you go if you go around as a group, yeah, you've got to get the right numbers and you've got to get onto the same space. But once you're together, like what what's your motivation for ever not being together? <laughs> okay. It is currently ranked somewhere in the eleven thousands of board game key. <laughs> um but so so there's not a lot of praise out there for it. There is particular picture of safe for the end game. <laughs> Typical quote of the end game involves almost zero decisions. No, you just um, fight is this a game that gets worse as you go through it? It certainly gets more and more tedious. You start off thinking, ah, oh, you know what, it's got a bit of charm. You read out the cards and you try and remember the film and and you look at the minis and you're quite you're not you're not happy about playing it, but you're not really upset. But by sort of a forty five minutes in or forty minutes in or whatever, you're thinking, Oh come on, just something different. Just something different. Like someone do something different. They have a trap for me. Oh like you've landed in a trap. Okay, I'm going to take this and I'm going to have to uh, give credit for this one because this might be my last comment on the game. It's from Paludo on Board Game Geek and uh, their comment with their rating was, I've never seen a game worse than this one. (laughs) Paludo's Um, not a big fan, Sean. So I'm going to sum up before you say any further. I'm going to pass. Thanks for the offer of the game. You should have sold it when that offer came in. I think I think my wife's reaction to it sums it up. Now, this is a person who's obsessed with Labyrinth. She's got Labyrinth t-shirts, Labyrinth mug. She loves Labyrinth. As I said, she wore those videotapes then as a child watching it so many times. She must have 500 watches of that film. She wasn't fussed by it. He was, mm, yeah, meh. I don't know if I'd ever play that again. Ouch. Yeah. So that's probably as as good as it's going to get for labyrinth unfortunately it's not a game it's not a game it's an exercise in remembering the movie and rolling some dice unfortunately okay. well, there i think you go. we need a break for both of us and the listeners to recover and i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna have a little sing of there wasn't in a merry old inn beneath an old grey hill as we go there was an inn a merry old inn beneath an old grey hill <laughs> and there they brew a beer so brown the man 
So we're going to fire into three quicker games and three quicker reviews for the second half of this episode. And the first of those is going to be the Grizzled from Fabian Ruffo and Juan Rodriguez. Two to five players, roughly 30 minutes. This is a cooperative game in which a team of players are based in World War One. And they are trying to survive World War One and get through to victory by working their way through a deck of hazard cards. Each round, team leaders are going to go around the table clockwise. They are going to choose how many cards each player receives. And they're going to choose exactly how many cards each player receives. You start with a game with a minimum of three each. And the cards must be dealt out evenly. So if they decide everyone's getting two cards, everyone around there is getting two cards. On your turn, you're going to choose from a selection of actions. The most basic one, the most common one, is to play a card cards come in two varieties they're either going to be a hazard which you're going to add to a row on the table the hazards are going to show some combination of climatic conditions snow rain nice weather nighttime whatever it may be and hazards there's whistles and there's bombs and there's bullets the key to this is if you ever have to play a card onto that row and you get the third of any of those particular things out there this mission that you're on for this round is a failure with negative consequences so you're trying to manage your hand and not have to play those out the other type of card you've got are conditions now they will add something negative to how you have to play the game they might mean that you are hard-headed so you can never retire and and come out of the mission unless you have a certain number of cards in your hand as in a low number of cards or you might be particularly scared of a particular condition so you might be particularly scared of bullets for example so that you only need two bullets in the row at that point and missions fails as opposed to three or you could be mute so you get to get to talk for the rest of the game there's loads of varied things that you can get now all these conditions will have one or two lightning flashes on them and if at the end of any mission any player has got four or more lightning flashes the whole team has lost that mission and you've lost the whole game because you've lost one of your teammates there are some other things you can do on your turn other than just playing cards everyone starts with an ability which allows them to discard one card from the row, showing a particular type of hazard. So, for example, if mine was to get rid of bullets, I could turn over, rather than playing the card, turn over my ability card, get rid of any card in the row with a bullet on it, no matter how many other things were on there, because, like I said, they come in combinations. If you've been victorious previously as team leader, you may well have gotten a speech from the game. And on your turn, if you have got a speech, you can say, and you do have to say it's part of the game, we are very brave. We are no longer scared of, for example, rain. And everyone can then discard one rain card from the hand. And you choose whichever one it is when you give the speech. Or the last thing you can do is, now I was talking about withdrawing when I was talking about conditions earlier. You can choose to withdraw from the mission and keep whatever cards are left in your hand at that moment. Any conditions you've played will remain in front of you. And then you choose to play a support token face down. And the support token will have a direction and a number of moves. And basically, when the mission's over, you're going to be able to push your support wherever you've played face down and if a player gets a majority of support they then get a bonus which means that they're going to be able to either reactivate their ability or they're going to be able to remove up to two of their condition cards so that support can be very important in managing the table if everyone withdraws before you have three of the same hazards it's victory and like i say the team leader is going to gain a speech At the end of each round you're going to add cards to the deck there's a minimum three goes in because it's kind of two decks there's your mission deck and then there's the deck that you're going to add to is you add a minimum three but it goes up to however many cards are left in players hands you're trying to avoid that supply deck running out and showing the war and war at the bottom if you've done that then i'm afraid it's game over and you have not been victorious what you're trying to do is get through your mission deck have no cards left in the mission deck or in any player's hands at the end of a successful mission and the team have won the game 
Only takes 30 minutes. It's a quick cooperative game. Like I mentioned earlier, Mark Johnson put me onto it as well as others. I've been playing it quite a lot recently. Sean, you haven't managed to get any games of this one in, but is there anything you want to chat with regards to it with me? Yeah, well, most of the games that you're going to talk about in this second half, I haven't actually managed to get a game of, but heard a lot about The Grizzled. And I've heard all about this really tense experience. From looking at the rules and in just basically browsing the rules and looking how the game plays and the mechanics work out. Explain to me, I don't understand it. People keep saying it's really tense. Why is it tense? Well, how does that tension build? Well, firstly, it depends upon the difficulty, okay? So if you're playing with four or five players, it's a tough cooperative game. Three is a lot easier. So the fact that it's a tough cooperative game, um, that's going to add some tension in there to start with. There's risk-taking in the game. Okay, you don't know exactly what cards other players have. So you're not sure exactly what you need to play out of your hand because you're not allowed to discuss what cards are there. Also, you're going to have to play condition cards. You're going to have to get some conditions in the game. And it's a risk there whereby suddenly my condition, for example, I might take all the support tokens or I might take it that I'm always leader. It's a risk that if someone else plays a worse condition, if we win the victory or we try and get support to them, and we, they, they need to get rid of their conditions before I get rid of my conditions. So I'm left with a very difficult situation. And because it's actually a shared pool, if you like, a lot of it is to do with what conditions are down, what's our current situation, how are we going to manipulate our way out of any particular holes we get into. There's cards that you play that have got, you have to flip over an extra card when you play it. So there's a risk in that. Now, once they're in your hand, you're going to have to play them at some point. And you can lose with as few as three cards in the game. So there's quite often you're forced a situation where you go, oh, um, I think I'm going to play this card, but then it's a blind flip. And then I don't know whether... So there's lots of risk taken in there. But because you're only doing one thing a turn, you're immediately passing to the next person. You feel responsible for what situation you're handing to them. Very good. And... The theme, very, very serious, somber theme. Um, does it come through? Is it dealt with well? The artwork is not that serious. It's kind of cartoony. I don't like the artwork, I have to say. Lots of people do, but I'm not the biggest it's fan. The, it's from the guy the, the guy who was killed in the Charlie, Charlie Hebdo. Hebdo. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, thanks for pointing that out when I was saying I don't like it. Yeah, you're welcome. You're, you're, you're the welcome. best. <laughs> I'm so sorry, man. It was a tragedy, but I don't love the artwork. But okay. So that kind of alleviates it a bit because the characters are, are, are not very realistic. I'd say the most thematic aspect of it, as well as that tension, I think, is that the condition cards, because they feel thematic. Like it, What it says is what you are. You know, if you feel paranoid, the game effect is you are paranoid. If you feel clumsy, like if you're clumsy, you have to flip over another card whenever you withdraw from the mission. And it is a clumsy thing to do. It's like, oh, oh God, sorry, guys, I attracted another bullet. Oh, we're dead because of it. And I think that's where a lot of the theme comes in for me in those condition cards. And just the fact that, again more the higher play counts because with more players it's you've got less control over what's going on it's longer for you to wait round so you can't plan exactly to get rid of your cards as well it's much harder for the team leaders to be playing hand size because you're taking five cards or ten cards or fifteen as opposed to three six nine so you're less fine control but at those because it feels very hard that's when you get the feeling of we're all in this together we're gonna have to get a little bit lucky on occasion we're gonna have to take some risk on occasion and let's hopefully all get through this so would you say four and five is kind of a must for this game to get to get the most out of it? I think so, yeah. It works with three, but it's slightly easier. And I think 
as with a lot of co-op games, the harder it is, almost the more fun it is. Hi, and uh, my last real question is, how easy is it to, to read what people are doing? Is there, is there giveaway signs, or do you have to know the people <laughs> well? <laughs> well, I... I think I have to be permanently given the mute card. <laughs> I get a bit, I know why. I kind of do in a lot of that. When we play this game, I get quite into it. It's funny because you think we're just playing a card. There's only one thing to read. Right? Well, I have, yeah, there's two bullets out. Are you stuck with only bullet cards? But there's more to it than that. For example, you kind of have to be aware of where support tokens are going. Don't leave someone with only one player to their left support tokens because then they've only got one option. And then you're stuck in who you're trying to get support to because support has to be an outright majority. Again, with like four, it's very hard. Five is very hard to actually get an outright majority, but you can't tell each other where you've written support. So then you're trying to think, okay, they've got a bunch of rights, so they're probably going to have to go right. So I should go left to try and meet in the middle. So, so things like that you're trying to read, as well as what cards they've got, as well as what conditions they might play. If they play that condition, that's a terrible condition. means that the card they've got in their hand is worse oh no now we've got a serious situation so yeah okay well obviously i haven't played the game but my summing up is all going to be about i I really want to play this game i've heard a lot about it you've talked about it mark johnson talked about it on the podcast and so many people have a lot of love for this game but i'm desperate to play this one so hopefully it'll be soon yeah, I have picked up my own copy with the expansion. It adds missions and sort of more on top once you kind of got used to, to the uh, level of challenge in the base game, if you like. It's a very good expansion, so I do recommend getting it if you do like the sound of the grizzled. For me, this tense challenging cooperative game i love that it's all a shared pool so every card that gets played is important and changes what is the best play for the next player and one person getting a condition can suddenly change everyone's priority and what they're doing but you don't know that's coming up it can be very important when to time when to use your ability or a speech to help get you know should i do it because i'm really stuck so i need to make a speech about rain or should I th- oh, there's been loads of rain cards played. I'm in a hole. I'm going to have to just sit this one out and keep hold of my speech because I don't want to waste it. And then trying to read, you know, what the players need. It's, it, there's loads of fun in that and the timing of when to intervene. Getting stuck with bad support tokens can make it really tough. And that happens a lot with three player again, which is why I'd say try and play with four or more. It's short. It's challenging. It's different. Surprisingly, it's a lots of fun with that theme on it. And I really do love the grizzled. So thank you, Mark, for the recommendation. And thanks, everyone, for playing with me, even though I get too excited. Tut. Okay. We're going to move on to Fabled Fruit, designed by Friedman Friesser from Stronghold Games and a whole slew of other companies. This is a game where you are collecting sets of fruit in order to blend juice concoctions as per the requirements on, initially, six card stacks on the table. And then you take that card off the table. I'll talk about what happens after that in a minute. Cards on the table also represent your action selections. So as you move your marker onto them and perform the action described, you are going to do things like pick up fruit cards, you're going to swap with other players, you're going to steal from other players, you can trade in the market, and and so on. And then the first of the three juices is going to win the game. But now here comes the twist. When a card is taken, another replaces it. With Every fourth card will change what the action is and it will add a new action into the gameplay so and there's a whole massive stack of these so that it keeps on going and it keeps on going and what you can do is you can just gather those all up into a bag and you can carry on where you left off the last time 
So it's an ever-changing game. If you carry on going through that deck, you're not going to play the same game twice or not for a long, long time until you get through that massive stack of cards. So this is part of Freedom of Freeze's new fabled system of games and is promised to be more coming in the works, but this is the first one of them, Ronan. We had a bit of a mammoth fable fruit session up in my new abode in Birmingham. How did you find it? Well, this game had a mountain to climb before it ever started doing anything with me because of the theme, the presentation, the idea, the kind of, you're some kind of weird generic animals collecting fruits, with like completely unthematic, making fruit juice. It was off on the wrong foot to start with, Sean. I quite like the artwork. And I wasn't too bothered about the the theme. I, I mean, I got the fact that you were blending fruits to, to make this special fruit juice. And I didn't really feel I needed to look too much deeper than that into the game. But I, I like the artwork. But I suppose if you delve into it, it doesn't really make any sense at all. If I'm going to spend my time doing something, well, I don't want to be looking at the kind of low-grade animal artwork you get on the walls of nurseries. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just there's no appeal to me. And what am I doing? What's my motivation? Why am I here? Why am I trying to? You're collecting fruit to give you know. Well, but four of those won't work. That wouldn't make any sort of a juice. You, know? you need three of these and two of them. It's just, yeah, collecting different. From... No, mate, it's not. That is not pulling it off for me. The second thing, and I think this is a slight hangover from five oh four from Friedman Freezes. Why am I playing several set collection games? Rather than just finding a set of rules that work and playing that, or two sets of rules, or three, three set collection games, great. Those are my three favourite set collection games. I'm going to play them. Why Fable Fruit? And I, I guess the appeal must be in the fact that you're supposed to be constantly adapting your strategy because new rules are coming out. But they're actually coming out really slowly. And in a game, you're going to get two maybe three new cards out which you may or may not be using and i just thinking like i say that 504 thing or 504 okay games and in this i've got 30 okay set collection games so okay so we're going straight to the nitty-gritty we're not messing around right okay right so for me this game it's okay it's okay as a set collection game it's, it's quite fun and some people are saying that you have to really go through it and you have to play into it as much as you can and and you, you get these new cards. And as you said, you're adapting constantly to the new cards coming out. And yeah, and, and you play this really long game. I don't see that there's any fun in that at all. We tried to do that. And I think by like the third or the fourth card that had come out, we were starting to get a bit bored. Some of them didn't quite work as well as as they should. Some of them sort of counteracted other things, and some of them were the really obvious choices to keep doing and prolong the game. Like the, the one where the person with the most cards has to, has to discard down and give them to other people and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think the, the longer it went on, the less I liked it. And I think, it, for me, if you ball it up and you just literally introduce two or three new cards, maybe even from the start, just say, right, that's gone, that's gone. These two, these are the two new cards we're bringing into this game, and let's go. I was waiting for the better cards to appear. Cards came out that cost more juice. Cards came out that possibly did more complicated things, that you bank fruit and stuff like that. But 
the better cards never came. And I think that was part of why it was annoying. You were like, right, let's play another game, hoping that something would happen that would be like, oh, here's the hook, or here's the card that we, or here's the mix-up. And we got into you know, into the 20s in the number of the cards, and like games actually just became slower, became more tit-for-tat, became more, right, dirt, 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 right, we attack you. Now we know that basically the next person along is going to get attacked in four turns time because they'll have built something up. And then it'll be the next person along's turn. I was waiting and waiting. And and this kind of fable system almost made it worse for me because it wasn't like, here's the setup, play this, see if you like this mix of cards. It was, here's the setup, but there's something else coming. There's something else coming. It's not someone telling you there's a great ending to a film. It's kind of going to ruin the ending. I'm not feeling the love from you for this game, but I when I when I first played this in Essen and myself and Natalie did our like quick overview of this and a couple of other games that we played that day at Essen, we quite we quite enjoyed this one and because we hadn't really delved deep into it and I think the first few like the, I think we'd maybe saw saw two new cards we introduced the market and that kind of thing and it, and it was interesting it, and it did change it up and it, it made me sort of hanker for more. But having seen more, my my opinion on the game has changed a little bit, and it's more in line with your opinion. I don't think I, I'm as down on the game as you appear to be so far, I, but certainly I, I didn't enjoy it as much. And there's a couple of cards that I would literally be it would be a rock and roll moment, and they'd just be ripped up and thrown away. <laughs> You're out yeah. of here. Yeah, that that one, that, as I mentioned before, that one where the person who has got the most cards. So you spent. I don't know, three, four turns maybe, building up your cards because you're trying to get that set collection and it's getting harder to get that set collection. And somebody with one one turn, because it's pretty much the only thing they can do or is realistic to, to do, they uh, take all your cards away. Yeah. Mm. And, and and fruits are quite hard to come by. So it's not often you'll go to the same spot as someone else because yeah. you'll have to hand them a card because – there's not that many cards whereby I'm handing in one to get three. Yeah. It's often I'm making a one card gain from my actions. And also how many times, I mean, I don't know whether we just got to the point where it was the worst collection of cards out, but there was so many times it was our go and you literally had one thing you could do. Well, I can't do that because I don't have enough cards. I can't do that because that's blocked by a person I can't pay a card and then there's only one place literally one place I can go I don't particularly want to go there but I have to go there yeah I mean it, it might be the result of playing it four player maybe it does work better with two or three it'd be an unusual sort of game if it does but maybe maybe it does because we played it exclusively four players and well you've played two player a few times it just didn't yeah I mean I don't I might come across incredibly negative I'm not incredibly negative it's okay if someone said you fancy playing fabled fruit I'd probably look around for another half an hour game, and if they were still the only one going, I'd be like, yeah, I'll join in. I, I guess I wouldn't mind seeing some of the other cards, but the whole thing is sort of an exercise in why for me. Why this idea, just because you can do something, doesn't mean you should do something. Mm. I think uh, yeah, us playing it in sessions, where we played a big wodge, and we went, well, that didn't work, so we went back, and then we played another big wodge of it. Didn't work at all. I think if you are going to play it, get it out, play one game, Pull it away. Just use it as a filler, rather. So we, we kind of based a couple of nights around it, and it was not strong enough to carry 100%, that. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. Even so, though, mate. I mean, I, I cannot see 
any situation in which I'm going to say, oh, we've got half an hour, let's get out Fabled Fruit. I'm sort of going that way myself. As I said, I, I, I quite liked it. And one of my comments originally was that unlike 504, it didn't feel like a maths project. But the more I play this, the more it does feel like a project. Yeah. I don't like saying because I Freeman Freeze is one of my favourite designers, the power grid out of this world, one of my favourite games ever. This whole Freeman Freeze is a great designer thing. Power grid. <laughs> Every time I start talking about boxing, somebody gotta pull power grid out. Mm, maybe, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> It's played the trick of giving you hope, Sean. Hope it will get better. And every game of it kills that hope slightly more. Yeah, yeah. I think you said it well there. <laughs> it's interpreted your words. Yeah, thank you. Any final thoughts, Ronan? Nah, I think I've said it all, mate. It's, it's, I'm fine never seeing it again. It doesn't offend me. It's no end game to Feast for Odin. But it's just, yeah, you know. I'm slightly more positive on it. I mean, I'm happy to play it. I have the game collection and... I think there are times I probably will play it again in the hope maybe to come back banging on that drum, hoping that it does get a little bit better. And hopefully some of the cards were a little bit more interested and a little bit more balanced, but I wouldn't be surprised if I did get bored of it in the very near future. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a clever design, but not quite matching the promise. Okay. Final game we're going to cover in this episode is Valeria Card Kingdoms. It's a 2016 release designed by Isaias Vallejo. One to five players, 45 minutes. This is a fantasy-themed tableau builder in which you're going to generate resources in order to spend gold to hire citizens, to build domains, also with money, and then to use magic and combat you've generated to defeat monsters. So how are you going to generate all of these resources? On your turn... Each player is going to roll two dice. You're going to start with two citizens available in front of you with a four and a five on them. Every citizen that you have in your tableau that matches the number of one dice or the next dice or the sum of both dice added together is activated and they will give you some form of income. Now, depending on whether it's your turn or another player's turn in which these dice are rolled, the income is going to be slightly different, but every player will benefit from every roll of the dice as long as they have citizens in their tableau that match one or more of those numbers. Then on your turn, after rolling the dice, you get to take two actions. And you may have some powers to mitigate those dice a little as well, by the way. You can use the collected gold combat and magic to either buy more citizens, which will give you more income, more variety maybe, or maybe you'll stack up on the force, or whenever that's rolled, you can get loads of income. However... Every time you purchase a citizen of the same number, the price is going to increase. Now, I'm talking about numbers because there's a bit of variety in the box. There is more than one number four citizen, more than one number five, etc., etc. And the highest level citizens, the 9, 10, the 11, 12, they come on one card. So you roll 11 or a 12 and activate that citizen. The other thing you can do is you can buy domains with the money. Now, domains are going to give you victory points at the end of the game they're also going to give you some form of special power and they have a citizen type requirement so the citizens you hire they might be military or they might be workmen they might be religious or they might be sneaky and you're going to have to have a certain number of each of them before you can buy the domains and it's all this in iconography on the cards it's all very clear the last thing you can do there's going to be usually five stacks of monsters available to you now these are all themed in stacks according to terrain 
Ukraine, very loose team there, and they are going to go from the weakest down to the toughest down the bottom. And you're going to be able to spend combat and magic to defeat these monsters. Magic can also be used as a wild resource. It can count as money or combat, should you wish to add it in that way. But some monsters require specifically magic to be spent. And when you defeat a monster, you're going to get instant power. They're going to score you points, and there may also be some kind of combination scoring going on. So often if you defeat the boss of a stack, you're going to get a certain number of points per monster of that type you have previously defeated. Once there are two times the number of players in empty stacks in the game, the game ends, and whoever has been able to collect victory points from their citizens and score via their monsters and their domains the most points is going to win the game. Sean Valeria Card Kingdoms. There's one overwhelming comparison that everybody is seeming to make for this game, and that is, is it Power Grid. Is it Power Grid? Funnily enough, no. Okay. It's Machikoro, and you hated Machikoro. I was really surprised. I, mean, I haven't played this game, but everyone's telling me it's it's Machikoro with a bit of frills. You picked this game up. I was shocked. Why? Okay, so I picked it up for Rachel for Christmas because she had played a prototype at one of the lobster cons and she had said she enjoyed it it fit in so we own a lot of games uh, so it's not always easy to think of what game Rachel will like so this one I knew she liked it it came out I missed the Kickstarter great that's why I went for it I actually knew nothing about it at all I had no idea what it was like I had no idea what it played like I had a quick look at it it is great looking the art is fantastic it is Vibrant, Sean. Vibrant, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll striking, striking. <laughs> am, am I missing any other buzzwords? Probably. Okay, right. So it was good looking. She enjoyed it. Sure, why not? Let's give it a go. Now, Machikara. <clears throat> I'm going to say constantly more, and all the mores are going to relate to you have more decisions in this game. It's not a heavy game. It's not a massive strategy game. It is a quick game in which you can decide to go down certain paths, but you are much more in control of your fate. With the more currencies, straight away that equals more decisions. Am I going to go very fighty in order to go for monsters? Am I going to go for pure gold and try and rake in loads of domains? But when I'm doing that, am I getting the right citizen combinations to go with my domains? These are not big decisions, but I feel like I'm making decisions. I feel like there's more variety in the game than Machikoro. I feel like you have way, way, way more agency. I feel like at least you can have different goals. In Machikoro, you're all trying to build the same four landmarks. In this... Ah, it's not massively strategic, but you can decide to go a different way. You're not forced down one path. So, I mean, also at the beginning of the game, you get a, a choice of one of two dukes or duchesses, and they're going to give you an individual way of scoring points. So I might get bonus points for every military character I've got. I might get bonus points for every monster of a certain level that I've defeated. And, and that is enough for me. To build on that dice rolling kind of fun thing to work and, and elevate it way above Machikoro, despite they might seem like not the biggest differences, I feel like I at least have some control over what's going on. It's got a bit more meat on the bones than Machikoro. A for... bit more meat on the bones, yeah. yeah. I, I'm missing these buzzwords. Let me write them down. <laughs> I will agree with the artwork. I have had a look at the artwork and it is absolutely excellent. It's, it's really beautiful. And yeah, it is striking. <laughs> and vibrant and 
memorable. Oh, a new one. Hold on. Right, right down. down, right down. Get in there. In the Schwanzikon. Two minor, minor quibbles. I have heard it is almost too easy to gather cards. I think this one actually came from Mr. Vassal on his review. He said it's really easy to just gather loads and loads and loads of cards, and it just becomes less exciting when you do get a card then. Yeah, so definitely once you go above three player, because you're getting activated so often, you'll just get swamped in currency. It'll almost be impossible to spend it quickly enough. And you will score some points at the end for leftover currency and stuff like that. But it takes a lot of the decisions out of it. So one thing, I think it may work best two player. Three player still works, but you'll be pretty rich. House rule, and I know I've been house ruling a lot recently, but for me, what you have to do is when you roll those dice, it's supposed to be every other player activates on the turn. I just say players left and right activate. And, and if anyone, if you've got four or five players, the other, otherwise you just end up with too many. And four or five players is too many for this game anyway. Don't don't hang too much meat on those bones, Sean. They'll collapse. You'll get rickets or something. <laughs> we touched on it at the top of the show, Ryan. It's kind of confusing as to which one of the Valerias this actually is. They've not really given us any variety with the names. Could they have chosen more generic words <laughs> to hang off the one distinctive word? It's like, what, which one is this? Well, villages, or was the quest, card kingdom, what is it? Come on. Yeah. Now, I ordered villages of Valeria and got sent another copy of Valeria Card Kingdoms. For example, even game shops are getting confused. Silly idea. But having played Villages of Valeria, artistically, thematically, now it's not a great theme, it's generic fantasy. At least the cards do somewhat tie together and feel a bit thematic in the game. And also Villages of Valeria, which we may well um, review at a later date. But uh, the games do tie together despite playing very differently. So Villages of Valeria is more about multi-use cards. This is obviously a sort of a match a rolly dicey tricky tableau game. But the symbols match up. The fact that you need certain symbols to get buildings match up. So... They've at least linked them together. I, I don't know about quests. Obviously, I haven't played that. It's not available yet. So I can see that, yeah, it's, they are tied together. It's not just a name. It's not. Sometimes you get games with the same name, and you're like, why are these linked? This is just. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You just paste it on the same theme. Here, at least, yes, it ties together. But you've got to put something better on there than just car kingdoms, villages, and quests, because it's just confusion left, right, and center. It's, it's a bad idea. Indeed. Uh, You've sold it to me a little bit more, Ronan. Uh, Something I'm more interested now than I was. Thinking on Magikoro, I I didn't like it either. You are telling me it's a little bit more in-depth. You have got more agency, you have got more choice, then fair enough. I will be happy to give it a go. But what are your final thoughts on it? Well, it's, it's still quite a light game, but it's not brainless. It's got that visual appeal. It's got that kind of gambling excitement to it where you go, oh, I'm going to stack up on five. And every time someone rolls a dice, it's a bit like, yeah, it's a good roll for me. Oh, it's a bad roll for me. It's going to even out in the end probably anyway. But at least for that sort of moment, you go, oh, I just need three combat and then I can kill that that drider before someone else nabs it. Oh, I didn't get my three. Yeah, that can happen. Not a higher player counts, though, obviously. There is a bit of denial of other players. If you can see they're collecting something or they're going for particular workers, you go, oh, maybe they've got that duke that's a bonus for such and such. Or maybe they're saving up for that particular domain because that power really links into what they're trying to do. So you can be a little bit gamey. Depends if you're playing with the kids or not, but you can be like, I'll take that one. Ah, I wanted that one. But it's never too serious because there's always something else good to do. I like 
the build-up, because your tableau is building up, you're becoming more powerful, you're getting more in, so there is at least you know, an arc, a, a great, yeah, I'm getting better, I'm getting, I'm getting better, and the game's over before it's outstayed its welcome. You start to fight the cooler monsters, you might start with an orc, go onto an owlbear, fight a dragon by the end, yeah, that, that feels kind of good. So it's good, it's a strong beginner's gateway, family sort of level game. I'm happy with it, look, it's not changing the world, it's not my favourite game, but... It is very pleasant to play. It all works. Great iconography. And I think this is a nice gateway game. So Valeria, Card Kingdoms, I suggest checking it out. Very good. And we'll see you out after this brief musical interlude. And there we have it. There is episode 81. It's been a long time coming, Ronan, but we got there in the end. We did get there. We might even look at some 2017 games soon. Well, let's not let's not push on too quickly. <laughs> Don't forget, I'm coming to Sydney for most of March. If you're out there, give me a shout. I'm going to be going to... I can't remember the name of it. There's a Sydney board game club that meets Wednesdays and Fridays and Saturdays. And I'm going to be going there at some point. So possibly I'll see you there. Uh, hit us up on thegamehitpodcast.gmail.com if you're around Sydney and want to play a game. The next episode after this, Sean, we will be recording Thousands of Miles Apart. We will, we will. There may be an episode or two with Natalie, but it depends on how well you can get your recording gear across the miles and set up in Do you Sydney. mean how sober I am? Yeah, I was trying to be polite. <laughs> whoop, whoop. <laughs> uh, yeah, going to meet old rugby friends out there. It could be a serious couple of weeks. Yes, and we're going to be counting down 30 to 21. You had uh, the 40 to 31 last episode. That's coming up soon. We've got reviews coming up soon. We're starting to build up to the UK Games Expo already, Sean. That is creeping up on us fast. Oh, excitement. It is excitement. And Essen plans are taking foot already and i will definitely be there the time off is booked we sorted out the hotel we're just going to work out how to get there now and maybe home well we're getting there let's leave it at that yeah yeah i'm, I'm less fussed about getting home it's okay i'm gonna be adopted by a kind german family it's fine we'll just use the uh, feast for odin box and sail across the, across the sea. <laughs> jesus <laughs> it's good for nothing else no <laughs> who said that Right, thank you very much, Sean. Thank you, Ronan. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and we'll catch you next time on the Game Pit Podcast. As always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for gaming goodness galores and some fabulous podcasts, as well as the Dice Tower itself. If you wish to contact us, you can email us on thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com, and you can come across to our Board Game Geek forum. On either of those means, we are more than happy to chat to you or answer any questions you have. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Come and join us there at Game Pit Podcast. And if you wish to download our shows, we're on Stitcher, iTunes, and of course, Podbean itself. Thanks for listening. Music by E. Aaron.